Have you ever experienced being in complete darkness and all of a sudden being blinded by the light? Maybe you were camping and it was completely dark outside and someone turned on a flashlight and right into your eyes and almost blinded you with the light? Well, that is very similar to what we see in John chapter 20 with the resurrection story. We are going to look at how the resurrection is similar to that blinding light. If you look through the Gospel of John, you will find that uh, John, the author, often used images to help us understand who Jesus is. He used images like Jesus is the door, Jesus is the shepherd, Jesus is the bread of life, and one of those images is that Jesus is the light. You see, Jesus is himself the light, and he called himself the light on numerous occasions. And he came into a, a dark world. And to be the light means that he is truth and that he is hope. And he came to a world that is filled with a lack of truth and with hopelessness. And so, literally, it was as if he was this blinding light in a dark world. In fact, Isaiah 9 verse 2 says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of darkness, on them has light shone. God's answer to our problem is to send his Son as a blinding light in a dark world. But because we loved darkness so much, it is, it is not just that we were in darkness, but that we love darkness so much that when this light came to us, we did everything we could to get rid of the light. We wanted to snuff the light out. We, we, we wanted to crucify Jesus. We wanted to do anything we could so that that light would be put out. And that's exactly what we did, didn't we? We crucified the light because men love darkness rather than the light. And so if you were to look at what is happening, you would say that the darkness was winning. It looked like the darkness had won. The darkness had crucified their Savior. The darkness had mocked the Savior. The darkness had put out the light. It looks like darkness had won. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 22, verse 53, this is your hour and the power of darkness. But... What we find instead, and this is amazing, this is glorious. Instead of snuffing out the light, what we find in the crucifying of Jesus is that they merely accomplished to magnify the light. You see, not only does the light continue to shine, but we see it brighter than we ever saw it before. We see the light brighter in the crucified and risen Savior than we ever could have seen before. And we see the light shining the brightest in the gospel of Jesus Christ today. But you might say that their plans really backfired, didn't they? They attempted to put out the light, but God's plan all along was for this to be a means to shine the light to its fullest. So today I want you to see the brilliance of the light 
of Jesus through the resurrection story in such a way that he dispels all the darkness of our hearts. And that's my desire for you today, is that the light of the resurrection will dispel the darkness of our hearts. I want you to see the darkness of the crucified Savior. It's very dark. And then against that backdrop, I want you to see the light of the resurrected Christ. And then I want to marvel in what the resurrection means for us. Please join me as I read John 20, verses 1 through 23. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must first rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of, the first of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Mary and the disciples in this passage are at first a picture of what it looks like to be in darkness in the darkness of despair, because the, the, the Savior has been crucified. I want you to see the depths of darkness that come along with a crucified Savior. We are told that of, of Mary Magdalene that she arrives at the tomb and it is dark. And I want us to understand a few details here. First of all, it is Sunday, 
It is three days after Jesus has been crucified. He was crucified on Friday. And the time is that it is early morning, so early that it is dark outside. And Mary has come to the tomb because she is going to finish what she began to do, but the Sabbath prevented her from doing. And that is putting perfume and ointments on the body of Jesus. And we can see the darkness that Mary is in by her response she makes to seeing the empty tomb when she arrives at the tomb. And she makes this similar response three different times. When she gets to the tomb, she tells Peter and John, she runs and tells Peter and John, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And then she says a very similar thing to the angels and then she says a very similar thing to Jesus later on. And the point is that she's in desperation. She thinks someone has stolen the body. Apparently that wasn't uncommon in those days. And she thinks not only has Jesus been crucified, but also his body has been stolen. She is in deep despair. And I think the three times adds emphasis to the despair that she is going through. We can also see the darkness that Mary is in by her emotions. She is mourning, and twice we are told that she is in tears. She is without gladness. She is without hope. She is without joy. We also see the darkness and how the disciples are controlled by their fear in verse 19. It is not just that they are behind closed doors, but the doors are actually locked. They are hiding in fear. And that is a symptom of hopelessness. They are in the depths of despair, and they are hopeless. Imagine the darkness that Mary and the disciples are experiencing. The one who was supposed to save them, their, their, their hope had been crucified. All hope was gone, and now it was just darkness. I really believe that the first verse here where it says that it was dark means more than just the time of the day. I believe it means that the very heart of Mary and the disciples were in the depths of darkness. Have you ever experienced darkness like this before? Have you ever experienced deep despair, controlling fear, utter hopelessness? Well, against this backdrop of darkness, I want you to see the greatness of the light in the appearing of the resurrected Savior. John is the first one to see the light of the resurrected Savior as he bears witness that Jesus is alive. When Mary tells Peter and John, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him, and ask them what asking them what they are going to do, they begin running. There's an all-out sprint to get to the tomb. And John arrives there first, but he waits for Peter to get there. And Peter is the first one to go in, followed by John. And what does Peter and John see when they enter the tomb? Well, they see grave clothes, strips of linen on the ground. And not only that, but next to them, they also see in a pile by itself, they see the, great, the, the claws that would have covered his face. 
And right then, John begins to recognize that this is not normal. This is not some grave robbers who came by and stole the body, nor did the disciples come and take the body away. You see, no robbers would have left the most expensive parts of the body, the grave clothes with the perfumes, nor would the disciples have taken off the grave clothes. They just wouldn't have done that if they had stolen the body. John recognizes this and begins to believe. Light is dawning in his heart. Now, this does not mean that John fully understands. He certainly doesn't fully understand what's going on here. He doesn't recognize fully the implications of this. He doesn't understand how the scriptures work together. He won't understand how the scriptures work together, in fact, until Luke 24, verse 27, when Jesus expounds to them the scriptures about his death and resurrection. But for now, he puts the pieces together and realizes Jesus is alive. Now, John might have been the first one to bear witness to the resurrected Christ based on his conclusions from the empty tomb, but he's not the first one to see Jesus. The very first one to see Jesus with their own eyes is Mary Magdalene. Later on, we are told that Mary arrives at the tomb. We are told she returned to the tomb, but we're not told why she did that. And it's very likely she did that to get some closure, to understand what happened to the, the body. And so inside the tomb, she sees angels and she doesn't recognize them. And they ask her a very good question. They ask her, why are you weeping? And that's actually a mild rebuke. And it's a great question. Why is Mary weeping? They don't recognize that these are angels, but angels identify that God is doing something great. And Mary is unable to recognize it. Then she turns and sees Jesus. But once again, she can't recognize him. But he asks her the very same question. She says, Mary, or woman, why are you weeping? And how ironic is this? Jesus himself, the one that she is seeking, is the one who is talking to her. Why, Mary, are you weeping? It is only when Jesus calls out her name that the blinders are removed. And like a floodlight flooding her soul, she recognizes that this is her risen Savior that she is talking to. Jesus, in fact, says in John 10, verse 3 through 4, that in some ways, this is the very same exact experience that every believer has when they see by faith the resurrected Lord. Let me read what Jesus says. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. You see, God's sheep hear his voice. They recognize who is speaking to them, and they recognize that his voice is speaking directly to him. When they hear his voice, they hear him as their master. They hear him as their shepherd, and they hear him as their resurrected Savior. They believe, and that's what it means to have faith, is to hear God's word speaking to me. Now, obviously, we don't hear the audible voice of God today 
as Mary Magdalene did, but we hear his word as coming from him and speaking to us. Do you hear his voice today? When she recognizes Jesus, her response is understandable, isn't it? She grabs on to Jesus. It's almost like she says, don't go from here. Don't ever leave me again. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you don't need to grab onto me. I'm going to be around for a little while. I have not yet ascended. I am in the process of ascending. And go and tell the disciples I am alive and that I am ascending to the Father. In verses 17 through 18. So after appearing to Mary, Jesus then appears to the disciples, minus Thomas, so that they also bear witness that he is alive. In verses 19 through 20. Imagine the scene here. The disciples are all huddled in fear in a room. And not only are they huddled in fear, but the door is locked out of fear of the Jews. Right then, at that moment, Jesus comes and stands in the middle of the room. And he announces peace to them. And he shows them the scars in his hands and the scars in his side. And he reveals to them who he is. That it is their Savior and that he is alive. Have you ever wondered why a glorified body would have nail holes and gashes in, the, in, in, in their side? You know, it really doesn't make sense to us until we understand that the reason that there are nail holes and a gash in his side is because although the suffering is over, yet Jesus continues to be the, the sacrificial a lamb of God, that sacrifice that is acceptable to the Father. He continues to be our Savior. And the wounds in his hands and, and the gash in his side continue to bear witness that he is the acceptable sacrifice, that he is the only Savior. And for eternity, he will always be our Savior. He will always be the acceptable sacrifice. He will always be the reason why we are right with God. The scars are the assurance today that he is our Savior. And they continue to bear witness and will eternally bear witness that he is our Savior. We are not to see his wounds as some stain or some blemish or imperfection to the otherwise glorious body of Jesus. Rather, they magnify and they glorify the full picture of who he is. The response of the disciples is perhaps the greatest understatement in the history of the world. The disciples, we are told, are glad in verse 20. I would say they are definitely glad, aren't they? They have seen the risen Savior, he is alive, and hope floods into their souls. So what does the resurrection mean for us? What does the brilliance of this light mean for us? I want to examine this light for, for our last few minutes together. I want to see what this light means. I want to look, in a sense, at the sun and all its brilliance and look at what it means. Because of the resurrection, we have assurance of peace with God. Notice Jesus announces peace three different times, twice in these verses and one time in verse 26. When he comes to the disciples, he announces peace. And actually, peace was a common word used at the time. It was kind of like saying hello. It was kind of a general wish of well-being to someone you're talking to. 
But Jesus, when he says it, he means nothing common about the word peace. He uses it in the most uncommon way you could imagine. When Jesus uses the word in light of the resurrection, what he means is that we have peace with God. You see, the greatest problem in the world is that we are out of favor with God. We do not have peace with God. And oftentimes, this is something we do not speak about. But it is something that we absolutely need to understand. That God is angry at us because of our sin. Our sin means the wrath of God is upon us. My wife's cousin, who is a missionary in the Philippines, wrote about a heartbreaking conversation he recently had with a fruit vendor. He says one of them was arrested for being on the streets in violation of the curfew. Except he sleeps on the street. With the combined pressure of the sickness, quarantine, and no buyers, another, one of the vendors said, God is mad at us right now. And listen to what he said. I told her I agreed. Except not just during a crisis. And when we discussed that God is entirely angry at sin, but also perfectly merciful, justice and mercy can meet only in the cross. Christ came to deal with our sin through the cross so that we might be brought into a right standing with God. We are tempted to try to justify ourselves, aren't we? We're tempted to try to fix the problem, to bring peace into our lives, either to undermine our sin or to try to fix the problem by becoming righteous. But we can't do that. The only way to find peace with God is through Jesus and the cross where he deals with our sin problem and brings us into a restored and right relationship with God. Only through being in a right standing with God by faith can we say we have true peace with God. And this is unqualified, this is complete, this is unchanging peace, regardless of the circumstances we are in. This peace was promised for us in John 14, 26 and 16, 33. It was accomplished for us through the cross and it was confirmed through, to us through the resurrection. So Jesus gives us a transcendent, greater peace that goes beyond any circumstances we could ever go through. And we know that this peace is ours because Jesus has conquered death. And what is there to fear if Jesus has conquered death? We, we don't need to fear people. We don't need to fear viruses. We don't need to fear anything. There's nothing to fear. The peace of God that comes through the resurrection makes us fearless for the gospel. Because of the resurrection, we have the assurance to call Jesus our brother in verse 17. Jesus tells the disciples, he calls them brothers. To call Jesus brother is the same as saying we are in the same family. We belong um, to, the same, to the same family. And it means we share the same inheritance. It means we are joint heirs with Christ. Now, it doesn't mean Jesus ceases to be our Lord and our Savior. It just means we are also brothers. It's an incredible thought. And this also doesn't mean that he ceases to be the unique Son of God. He is always the unique Son of God. But it means we are also, in some sense, brothers. Because of the resurrection, we have the assurance to call God our Father. Notice Jesus tells the disciples, 
that I am going, uh, that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He calls the Father their Father. And apparently, Father is mentioned by John 108 times in this Gospel. And this is the only time where he calls God the disciple's Father. And this means that no matter who your Father is, if God is your Father, then you have the perfect Father. You have a Father who loves you, a Father who cares for you, and a Father who's going to protect you. You have the perfect Father. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we have full and everlasting gladness. Notice the words there. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And notice that they were in fear, in despair, in gloom, until the appearance of the resurrected Savior to them. You see, nothing changed in their circumstances. They were continually in the same circumstances. The only thing that changed was that the resurrected Savior appeared. And here is the secret to joy and gladness. You see, to live in constant view of the resurrected Savior is the secret to joy and gladness. Grief turns to gladness when, no matter what circumstances we are in, when we see the resurrected Savior for who He is. You see, there's an inseparable connection between hope and joy. Where there is hopelessness in our lives, there is no joy. When there is hope in our lives, there is fullness of joy and gladness. And this is exactly what Jesus said would happen in John 16, 20. He said their, their gloom would turn to joy. And that's what we see here. Because of the resurrection, we have a mission for our lives. Verse 21. Jesus said to them, As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. In the same way Jesus was sent, so are we sent. He is the model for our mission. And this is great because it means I don't have to come up with anything creative. I'm not really a creative person. And it's great that I don't have to come up with anything new or creative. I am simply to follow Jesus and his mission. You see, what does it look like to continue in the mission of Jesus? Obviously, there are some ways that we don't do the exact same thing he did. We don't incarnate ourselves. We don't ascend from heaven to earth. Nor, do, nor are we a sacrificial a lamb for the sins of the world. But in many ways, we are very similar and are to follow his example. You see, Christ's service is that he came to serve and not to be served. And Jesus says that is exactly to be our mission. We are to enter into the lives of the darkness of the world, into the lives of the people who are lonely and hurting and in pain. We are to come to them and serve them and not seek to be served. Christ came to bear witness to the truth. And so are we to bear witness to the truth. Both our words and our lifestyles should bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ also took up his cross, and so are we to take up our cross. We are called to take up our cross and follow him. If the world did not love Jesus, then neither will the world love us. And that is the cross that we are to bear. Because of the resurrection, we have power to fulfill our mission. In verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. How would you do if you were left up to your own power? How would you do if Jesus called you to do this mission on your own strength and ability? The answer is we would not be able to accomplish this. We would be able to do absolutely nothing of any value 
we would have no success. One of the questions we ask here, is this Pentecost? Is this the pouring out of the Spirit? Or is there somehow two pouring out of the Spirits here? One here and one at Pentecost. And the answer is we clearly see that this is not Pentecost because we do not see the effects of the pouring out of the Spirit. People are still fearful. And this is not a second working in pouring out of the Spirit. The pouring out of the Spirit came 40 days after this at Pentecost. This is rather symbolizing that the gift they would receive at Pentecost would come from Jesus and would come to them. It is foreshadowing the gift that was coming. Some people call it an acted parable. And perhaps the closest example that we can come up with was when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He said this, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me, in John 13, 8. And later he says, You are clean, in John 13, 10, in light of his foot washing. Now obviously no one says that his foot washing in itself cleansed them. That wasn't the point there, and no one thinks of it that way. Rather, the foot washing was anticipating, symbolically looking forward to the spiritual washing and cleansing that would come through the death of Christ. Are you aware of your spiritual need? Are you aware of your need for power, of resurrection power? You and I can't save anybody. I have no power to raise anybody from the dead. I have no power to open the blind. I have no power to open the ears of those who are deaf. The power to do anything of kingdom value comes from God himself. The good news is that he has empowered us to do everything we, he has called us to do. He has everything we need. You might run out of toilet paper. You might run out of sanitizer. But there is sufficient power in Jesus Christ that we need to accomplish the mission that he has sent us out to do. Because of the resurrection, we have a full, complete message of salvation to give to the world. We have a gospel message to give to the world. We see this in verse 23. In these very strange words, listen to this. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You see, we have the responsibility, we have the authority to go to the world and based on the gospel message itself, to proclaim based on his word, that people are either in their sins because they are not forgiven, or they are forgiven and their sins are cleansed. You see, you have authority to say, based on scripture, all who repent and believe are saved. If they truly do repent and truly do believe, then you have the authority to say that you are saved. And if they refuse to repent and believe, then based on the authority of God's word, you and I have have the, have the right to say you are not forgiven. You are not cleansed. You see, we have no authority or power based on our, ourselves. We are just agreeing with God. What he already said is true, and it's based on his gospel. We simply confirm that what God says in his word is true. We stand in agreement with God. Now, this doesn't mean we go to people and we say, you are saved. It doesn't mean we have the ability to do that. My son came to me and he asked me a very good question. He said, am I saved because I prayed this prayer? There's a book he was reading and it said, if you pray this prayer, uh, you will be saved. And I asked him, I said, well, what does the Bible say? How does the Bible say that you're saved? And the answer is, 
The Bible says you are saved if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't have the power and ability to say my son believes or doesn't believe, but I do have the right to say if he believes, he is saved. And if he doesn't believe, he is not saved because there's no other means for salvation. The, blind, the blinding light of the resurrection changes everything, doesn't it? What an incredible thought. What an incredible reality that in contrast to the darkness is the blinding light of the gospel of the risen Savior. The gospel dispels darkness. It gives us hope. It brings peace into our lives. It gives us joy and direction. Are you living in the light of the resurrected Christ? Are you living in the light of the darkness dispelling, glorious, shining gospel of the risen Savior? John 12, verse 46, Jesus said this. He talks about what it means to believe in the resurrected Savior. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. To believe in the resurrected Savior is to, is to cease to remain in darkness and to be in the light. In John 12, verse 36, Jesus said this about what it means to be in the light. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. To believe in Jesus is to become sons of the light. And so how does this happen? Well, Romans 10 verse 9 tells us, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If you are living in the light of the resurrection, then you should be shining brighter evermore as we as children of the light shine the light of the resurrected Savior to the world. Do you have a growing peace? A growing rejoicing? regardless of the circumstances? Are you finding yourself on mission more and more, doing the same thing that Jesus came to do? Are people seeing the reality of the risen Savior by the way you live your life and what you say with your words? Are you telling your friends and your family that Jesus is alive? Can you look back at your week and find yourself speaking of the greatness of the risen Savior? Are you saying, here am I, send me? And I pray, church, I pray that this is true of us more and more as we have a greater view of the resurrected Savior. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we are so grateful this morning that darkness did not gain victory over you, that you gained victory over darkness, that you are the risen Savior, no longer in the grave, but you have conquered death and conquered every enemy for us. Lord, we rejoice in the great hope of salvation that you have brought to our souls. God, I pray that if any of us find ourselves still in the darkness, Lord, I pray that you would show us and shine in our hearts the light of the glory, glory of the risen Savior. And may we believe in you today, and may you bring salvation to our souls. I pray for all of us, Lord. 
I pray for all of us that we would rejoice in our risen Savior. I pray that there would be an overwhelming sense of peace, that we are right with God, and therefore that we have an overwhelming sense of well-being in our lives. I pray that you would enable us to be on mission this week, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ with our actions and with our words. May we be those who proclaim the risen Savior. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you, God, that we have a great and mighty God, a risen Savior today. In Jesus' name, amen.